Good day. That's the best I can do. Uh, please turn back with me to Malachi, uh, last book in the Old Testament, and to uh, chapter 2, looking at the very last verse of chapter 2. I'm not going to read the passage today, I'll, I'll go through it as we uh, work through the sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth, and we pray that by your spirit you may take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm sure we all know people who are exhausting. Not me. <laughs> Maybe it's their intense personality, or their constant interruptions, or their unrealistic expectations, or their incessant questions, or maybe just all those annoying habits they have. But one way or the other, they wear us down. They test our endurance. They try our patience. They become those we might describe to others as being hard work or wearisome, tiresome. Well, here at the end of chapter 2, it's Malachi's audience who are so described. But it's not Malachi himself. Rather, it's God who's finding these people wearisome. It's God whose patience is wearing thin. And the problem is what they're saying, not just how they're saying or how often they're saying it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, says the prophet. As is typical of Malachi, his statement evokes a response. The prophet's audience replies with the obvious question, how so? How have we wearied him? What is it we've said? How have our words had such an effect, they ask? And so once again, the prophet elaborates with what is likely a summation. He explains the issue to them in terms of sentiments they were expressing. The core problem was simply this. These people were denigrating God's justice. They were denigrating God's justice. They were asking an all too common question. Where is the God of justice? Of course, like most who, answer, who ask this question, they had their reasons. Underlying the cynical inquiry was some degree of rationale. As is spelled out in their appraisal of the status quo, it seemed as though morality had been inverted. It seemed as though virtue and vice had been turned topsy-turvy. It seemed as though God had somehow confused what was wrong with what was right. As they cast their gaze around them, it looked as if all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. And friends, we might well be excused for drawing similar conclusions in our own day. After all, we live in a society, we live in a world that has turned morality on its head, that has labeled good what we consider evil, and that has labeled evil what we consider good. Here in Sydney, we, we live in a modern day Sodom a real-life vanity fair. We dwell among those who celebrate what we consider corrupt and sinful. We rub shoulders with those who despise what we consider to be upright and righteous. As someone said to me recently, the end of Romans 1 is a fitting description of contemporary society. They not only continue to do these shameful things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Don't you ever get depressed when you watch the news? When you see the depths to which our civilized society has sunk? When you're faced with some of the awful things that are happening in the world around us, don't you get depressed? A few weeks back, my wife and I went to see The Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen it, I suggest you do. It's the most confronting, the most disturbing movie I think I've ever watched. All the more so because it's about real-life characters and true events. It's not make-believe. It's reality. And it's a movie with a very strong message. Indeed, the message is spelt out very clearly at the end of the credits. So if you do go to see the movie, stay to the very end, to after the credits. It's no surprise that some sought to prevent this movie's release. Some powerful people sought to prevent this movie's release. You see, it calls our attention to some startling facts. Did you realize that the world is witnessing slavery on a level and demonic depth never seen before? Not even when slavery, human slavery, was legal. Are you aware that the child trafficking trade is the fastest growing international crime network the world has ever seen, grossing something like $35 billion per year? When you see the heartlessness of these human traffickers, the brutality of how they treat their victims, children, the callousness of the pimps and the perverts they're catering for. Friends, it's hard not to ask, why does God allow that? Why doesn't God do something? Yeah, where is the God of justice? As in Malachi's day, this is a question people commonly ask. And you know, it's not confined to the decent or the religious people. It's not just Christians who ask this question. Not just the morally respectable. As one commentator rightly observes, even the thief is outraged when someone steals from him. The liar takes offense when someone lies to her. The cheat resents it when they're cheated against. The murderer expects their own family to live in peace. We see that in Sydney, don't we? All people, not just the pious, want justice, at least for themselves. And so there's no reason to think that Malachi's audience has changed here, that he's now addressing the righteous rather than the wicked. Now, Malachi seems to be addressing both. But for one, there's a word of encouragement. And for the other, there's a word of warning. So this all-too-common question, where is the God of justice? Malachi offers an ever-so-biblical reply. It's spelled out there in the first five verses of chapter 3. In response to the question, where is the God of justice? Malachi makes a, a threefold observation. One, that he's certainly coming. Two, that this is good news for some. And three, that this is bad news for others. Where is the God of justice? Malachi starts by pointing out that he's certainly coming. Chapter 3 and verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now there's considerable debate over the number and the identity of the figures in this verse. At least four titles are used. My messenger, interestingly, the Hebrew is Malachi or Malachi, 
there's the Lord, lowercase O-R-D, Lord, whom you seek. There's the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire. And there's Yahweh, uppercase L-O-R-D, the Lord of armies. Now the latter, Yahweh, is clearly the speaker who will send his messenger to prepare the way before him. The Lord whom you seek and the messenger of the covenant you desire almost certainly refer to the same person, I, the one who will come to his temple. And if so, this can be none other than God himself. Thus understood, there are at least two and arguably three distinct figures in this verse. There's Yahweh, there's the messenger that is sending before him, and there's the anticipated divine figure described as the Lord, lowercase O-R-D, and messenger of the covenant. Significantly, Malachi uses day of the Lord language to depict this momentous event. God promises a future messenger, who, one who will prepare the way for his personal intervention when the Lord will suddenly appear at his temple and deliver God's justice. Need I ask the question, who is this anticipated messenger that Yahweh will send? Well, it's certainly not the prophet himself, even though Malachi, my messenger, certainly foreshadows him. Rather, the forerunner anticipated here by Malachi and later in the book is someone who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's an Elijah-like covenant enforcer, a lone voice who would fearlessly proclaim God's coming judgment and call people to repentance. I'm sure none of us have to scratch our heads thinking over the identity of this second Elijah figure. The New Testament identifies him very clearly and quite often as John the Baptist. Accordingly, we don't need to speculate over the identity of the one he precedes. It's none other than the Lord Jesus, Israel's promised king, David's Lord, L, lowercase o-r-d, the man who is God. Here in Malachi, we have one of the most significant messianic prophecies in the entire Old Testament. By implication, the messen this messenger of the covenant who, who Malachi's audience desires is the Lord, the one the New Testament repeatedly refers to using the Greek word Kyrios, Lord. In other words, in answer to the question Malachi's audience was asking, where is the God of justice? Malachi declares, Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, is most certainly coming. But as verse 2 suggests, this is not necessarily a good thing. This may not be the welcome prospect that some imagined. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. Verse 2. As the Old Testament repeatedly makes clear, this day of the Lord will be a day of surprises. Not everyone will get the justice they expect. Many may call out for justice, but it's often justice on their own terms, not God's. But it's the latter that's being described here, the justice of the Lord, the, the righteous judge. Justice that's based on truth. Justice that distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. Justice that separates the wheat from the tares. Justice that knows the difference between the sheep and the goats. 
this day of justice may not be exactly what these people hope for. Not everyone will be able to endure it. Not everyone will stand when God, the righteous judge, appears. He's likened here to fire and caustic soda. Not soap that was unknown back then, but caustic soda. Both fire and caustic soda burn. Both were used as agents of separation. Now, some of you may be aware, before going to college, I had a dry cleaning business. And I don't know if you've ever walked past a dry cleaning uh, business, but sometimes they used to have the large dry cleaning machine pretty up front so that you could see what's going on. And if you have seen it, you'll know that it's busy. It looks like a, a really, really large front load washing machine in which clothes are tossed around for about half an hour in liquid. And while the liquid may look like water, it's not. That's why they call it dry cleaning. <laughs> that liquid is actually perk urethane. And perk is an extremely potent chemical. On one occasion, I discovered just how powerful it could be. What I loaded into the machine as a cream Jaeger suit came out 30 minutes later very different. <laughs> the perk had separated the dye from the fabric. Needless to say, the owner was not impressed. In fact, it's the most expensive suit I've ever bought. It's the only designer label I've ever had to pay for. <laughs> what Malachi refers to here would have been just as effective as that perk. Together with the fire of the smelting furnace, the image here is one of radical separation. In this case, separating what should not remain from what should. This coming day, the Lord will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. And yet this is not necessarily something to be concerned about. This is good news for some. The Lord will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. That's good news. God will do the very thing these people in Malachi's day claim to long for. He's going to rectify the, the present wrongs in their society. He'll address the problem of their corrupt leadership. He'll purify and refine them by, by removing the dross, all the impurity, all the corruption, all that had led to the present sorry state of affairs where the worship of God had been contaminated, where second-rate ritual had replaced devotion to God where people had taken their cue from the bad example of their spiritual leaders. Well, God's going to remedy all this, starting with the Levites. They'd be purified. They'd be refined like gold and silver. There'd be radical cleansing, as it were. And as a result, God would again have those who would present righteous offerings, offerings acceptable to God as in former times. In other words, this day of the Lord would usher in true worship, worship with which God was truly pleased i.e. the right kind of offering offered by the right kind of person. While a shadow of such purification may be seen in the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, the full reality comes only in the person of Jesus with the institution of the new covenant. As high priest of the new covenant, Jesus makes the, the perfect offering to God. Moreover, through his atoning sacrifice, you and I have become a holy priesthood who continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, 
doing good and sharing with others, sacrifices with which God is truly pleased, says Hebrews. That's the new covenant reality to which our text is ultimately alluding. Nevertheless, that the, the God of justice is coming is certainly, not, is certainly not good news for everyone. It may be good news for some, but it's bad news for others, as verse 5 spells out. Not everyone should be looking forward to this coming day of God. Verse 5, I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows of the fatherless, and deprive foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. For the unrepentant, for the wicked, this will be a dreadful day, warns Malachi. It will be a terrifying day for anyone who does not fear the Lord. And Malachi provides some concrete examples. But he does so not because these were the worst types of sin or sinners, but because these are, are simply covenant violations that, that Malachi's audience would have easily recognized as such. And the point is not that these are the only sin or sinners that God will judge. The point is that, that God will judge all covenant violations. All who do not fear him will be put on trial and God himself will testify against them. He will be the, the main witness for the prosecution. Indeed, as we discover in the final chapter of this book, he'll also be the judge, jury, and executioner. Consequently, that great and terrible day of the Lord will consume them. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. Malachi 4, verse 1. It's not surprising that this was the somber warning given by John the Baptist and indeed by Jesus himself. And it's a warning to which we must pay attention, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of our families, for the sake of those that we love and care for, for the sake of others around us, those we rub shoulders with in the street, all those around us who are lost, who are presently without God, and without hope in this world. This is the terrible fate that awaits them. This is the grim reality to which the God of this age has blinded their minds. This is the biblical truth that should move us, like Malachi, like John the Baptist, like the Lord Jesus, to warn them, to plead with them to repent, to encourage them to escape God's coming wrath while they still can. The God of justice, he's coming that may be good news for some, but it's really, really bad news for others. Hence those sobering questions in verse 2 demand careful reflection. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? In Malachi's day, the answer may have been those who keep the covenant, those who fear the Lord. In the fullness of time, the answer is those who through union with Jesus are covenant keepers. That is all those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Where is the God of justice? He's coming. Of this we can be absolutely certain. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Friends, with that sobering truth ringing in our ears, let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, you stand appalled to see your laws of love so scorned and lives so broken. O Lord, let love reclaim the lives that sin would sweep away and let your kingdom come. Have mercy, Lord. Be gracious to those around us, not for our sake or even for their sake, but for the sake of your great name we pray. Amen.